0: Cut it! Johnny, uh, maybe we got to do one of those waves. Just a bit outside. He tried the corner and missed. The strikeouts are boring. Besides that, they're fascist. Throw some ground ball. More democratic. That's too high. Too hard. Right? First, it was really uh, high. high everybody and welcome to our latest edition of the cutoff man podcast where max and i will go through our slew of topics of of the last couple weeks and give you our thoughts on where we are with baseball so we just got an early christmas present the hall of fame ballot and i always like actually seeing the ballot come out early and get to kind of go through it but as max and i have been talking about this this version of the ballot The newcomers on this list, ooh, there are some stinkers on this one.
1: I got to say, it's one of those things where I love the ballot coming out. Even though I know who's going to be on it, it still makes me happy. Um, Anything that keeps baseball going in the winter, I'm all for it. But you're right, Zach. This is probably the worst uh, potential crop of first-year players that I think I've ever seen on a Hall of Fame ballot. You know, you had a year in 2013 where nobody was elected in, but you still had players who eventually got in, like Jeff Bagwell and Mike Piazza. Uh, not Bagwell, Abigio and Mike Piazza. This year, I don't know if any of these people are even going to get the 5% necessary to stay on the ballot next year.
0: I'm actually even kind of curious, how did some of these guys end up on the ballot, let alone, act, let alone get to the 5%? So we're just... I'm going to go through some of these names. All right, we have Latroy Hawkins, Shane Victorino, Michael Kadire, Dan Heron, AJ Burnett, Barry Zito, Tim Hudson, Aramis Ramirez, Nick Swisher, Tori Hunter, and Mark Burley. Oh, I missed Tim Hudson is also on this list. There, now, there are a lot of really good players on this list, but for Hall of Fame – this is the This is a class of the Hall of pretty good, but definitely not Hall of Fame. That's
1: right. Although I will say the worst person I ever saw on a Hall of Fame ballot was Lenny Harris. That one was completely inexcusable. <laughs> and I am fascinated to see of this group who gets more than, say, five votes. Um, and how you sort of separate the people who get no votes. Like I don't think Michael is getting a vote. I can see Nick Swisher getting a vote from somebody. I don't see. The Troy Hawkins getting a vote. I don't see Aramis Ramirez getting a vote, and certainly not one from Javi Vasquez. Don't know if you remember the two bench-clearing brawls in the same game, which is very hard to do for a number of reasons between the Expos and Pirates. At least circa '98. Is that that game? Yeah,
0: that 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 takes some doing, and especially if you can actually get the Vista twice in one game. That that's. That's also an even more rare feat.
1: Yeah. So the backstory of that one was Vasquez was running from second to third. And with Ramirez at third, he tried to knock the ball out of his glove, A Rod style, a la Bronson Arroyo. The bench is cleared. Neither were ejected. And then later in the game, Ramirez came up to bat and Vasquez plunked him and the bench is cleared again. So a little bit of a strange game. But yeah, unfortunately, that's my first Aramis Ramirez. Memory. Really good career. Again, not a Hall of Famer. Um, but you do have one guy that you like on this list, don't you? And I'm I'm not talking about Barry Zito. Although I know you like Barry Zito.
0: Barry's Barry Zito was absolved of all wrongdoing because of the 2012 postseason run. Um, but Mark Burley is kind of the one interesting case here because he is was a great pitcher for 16 years in the bigs. He was an automatic 200 inning guy. He won 200, I think it was almost 250 games. Like this guy was, he was the workhorse of the 2000s. And he did absolutely everything you would want a pitcher to do. He was one of the favorites I liked watching throughout the era. But at the same time, it's like, do I, when I hear his name, do I think Hall of Famer? The answer is no. I do not think Hall of Famer when I hear Mark Burley. The only other. Interesting name on here, and it's just the flash of how good he was when he was at his peak was Torrey Hunter. Like Torrey Hunter was also a really good player for a long time. But the offensive numbers that he he would have needed to get into the Hall of Fame conversation just were not there consistently enough.
1: Yeah, and I would say Hunter is almost like a poor man's Andrew Jones, who... We can talk about that case a little bit later, but certainly was not the player that Andrew Jones was, even though he was a very good player. Um, But I do want to talk about Burley a little bit. So as you mentioned, Zach, he ended his career with almost 15 straight seasons of 200 innings. He had 14 in a row, and in the 15th year, he fell four outs short of reaching 200 innings. First of all, I don't think we're ever going to see this again, um, or at least not for a very long time. it's sort of ironic in that you think this would be easier with the advances of sports medicine and technology. And yet, the idea of a 200-inning starter is increasingly rarer. And as much as I love watching Burley, and I think he made the most out of his career, I think it's like a 36th or 38th round pick uh, to find all the odds to, to make it, to survive. Got the most out of his ability, both in terms of his ability to field and his ability to sort of control the game, to work with the pace. He was a joy to watch. Um really good career and I hope that he is still remembered, even if I don't think I will be seeing him in Cooperstown.
0: Maybe we could just get a, a looping video of him gloving gloving that ball between the legs to first, and that will kind of be our lasting memory of Mark Burley that can live in the hall if even if his even if he does not have a bust in in Cooperstown.
1: So fun fact, about Mark Burley, not only did he have the perfect game, but he also had the no-hitter, I believe, where he threw the minimum batter's face. Oh, yeah. There's only one other person, I think, who has done that, and it was actually on a combined no-hitter. Do you know this story?
0: Ooh, I don't think I do.
1: So there's this young pitcher by the name of Babe Ruth. He walked the opening batter. He didn't think it was a ball, so he punched the umpire. He was ejected and this is going to sound really sad because I don't remember the gentleman who replaced him, but the gentleman who replaced him picked off that runner on first and retired the next seven, 27 batters.
0: Oh, there you go. <laughs> but officially, Babe Ruth has thrown a combined no-hitter. Officially. Officially. And that's all that matters. <laughs> <laughs> now, now the, the returners on this list are there, – there are no surprises on the rest of this list and this is also going to be hotly debated over the next few months because these names bring up a lot of controversy and because of the steroid era, because of P- connections of PEDs. and but, but you're also looking at a list of names that kind of defined a generation of baseball. So we will quickly go through this list and then Max and I will kind of start to pick and choose which of these we actually are saying are Hall of Fame worthy. So you have Bobby Abreu, you have Sammy Sosa, Gary Sheffield, Manny Ramirez, the previously mentioned Andrew Jones, Andy Pettit, Scott Rowland, Jeff Kent, Todd Helton, Billy Wagner, Omar Vizquel, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, and Kurt Schilling. So, I will pass it to you, and I think we'll kind of go back and forth on our picks. What are the names that are most intriguing to you on this list of the returners, and are there ones on here where you know in your mind that you're, you would absolutely not vote for them?
1: Yeah, so I don't think that I would vote for Andy Pettit, and I don't think I'd vote for Todd Helton. Or Billy Wagner for that matter, even though I love Billy Wagner. Um don't think I would vote for Jeff Kent either, but we can start there.
0: Yeah, I, I'm with you on Pettit Hilton, and Wagner, and I would add Bobby Abreu to that list. I I think Bobby Abreu is also like he had a very good career. I just don't think he was a Hall of Famer.
1: It's like He was very good for a very long time. I, I'm with you on that. He absolutely destroyed the Expos time and time after again. Um definitely a one of the most feared National League East hitters of, of that era,
0: but... I, I'm, I, it's still shocking to me that he won a home run derby somehow.
1: We won a home run derby and he almost ran out of gas too. I mean, that, was a, that was in Detroit in 06, right?
0: Yeah.
1: We had set the record and that was the year before Josh Hamilton hit the most home runs but didn't win. So that's a whole other story.
0: And Josh Hamilton obliterated that um, one round in the derby. That's right. But well, how
1: do you feel about Andrew Jones?
0: Andrew Jones, to me, the more I think about it, he's a Hall of Famer. He was the—you can make the case—he he was the best defensive center fielder of his era. Uh, there's only like one or two other guys I think that would even be in his class on that front. Uh, but he—he he, Coming up like he was initial immediately like a five tool guy. Like he had the speed, he had the power, he had the obviously had the glove. Uh he was on those Braves teams that were c- consistently in the postseason hunt can and in and were gonna challenge for a World Series title. There was just a lot going on. And that's Andrew Jones. The the Braves aren't the Braves without the Jones combination there. Chipper's already in the hall. Andrew was right there with them for mo- a lot of those years. So I don't think you can talk about the 90s Braves without the two of them. I know a lot of the focus goes to the pitching staff, which rightfully so. But that offense doesn't roll, and they don't have that success without those two guys. And if Chipper's in, Andrew should be right there alongside with them.
1: So I'm with you on Andre Jones as well as another nationally geese tormentor of the Expos, which there were, there were many because the Expos weren't very good, but that's a whole other story. Yeah. So the things that stand out to me about Andre Jones is you mentioned greatest defensive center fielder of his era. I'll go a step further. Other than maybe Ken Griffey Jr., you could argue that he is the greatest defensive center fielder since Willie Mays. And to not consider that and not think about that as somebody who's potentially worthy of the Hall of Fame. I think is wrong. The biggest case against him is how little he did after the age of 30, even though this was a guy that was playing in the majors since he was 19. And so um, certainly if he had one or two more really good years, I think it would have been a lot. He's almost the reverse Adrian Beltre in a way, Yeah, where Beltre, nobody thought Beltre was a Hall of Famer by the age of 30, whereas almost everyone pretty much assumed Andrew Jones would be.
0: So No, Andrew Jones, like he, that's actually, I like that comparison of it. He's the, he is the anti Adrian Beltran on their career paths and trajectories. But Andrew Jones, by the age of 30, by all accounts, like you already have 11 years in the bigs and he was a part of some incredible teams. And I need to take a look again and say he, he's what, 10, 11 gold gloves out there in center field. And and maybe the only one who could, who could even touch him in that era is the likes of Jim Edmonds.
1: Yeah, and I think what distinguished Andre Jones, and Jim Edmonds was great, and he certainly hauled very good to me. Edmonds was amazing, but he more or less played normal depth. Andre Jones played a good four or five steps, more shallow than everybody else, and so was able to take away a lot of singles that a, merely a very good center fielder would not have been able to take away. And yet, it was nearly impossible to hit the ball over his head. The and way so he was able, to, yeah, his yeah, track I was say into that the
0: ball—that and that's that's step. a skill that a lot, a lot of guys have. Just being able to go back on the ball like that, because.
1: And again, the center field
0: is a premium position, right, Zach? I mean, and that far, was a and that was a huge center field at Turner Field.
1: In an offensive era where there were a lot more balls in place than there are now. And again, I would argue that he was the greatest defensive center fielder in the last sixty to seventy years, probably since Mays. To me, that's a Hall of Famer. I
0: think, we, I think we agree, and we're checking off Andrew Jones Hall of Famer done. If it were up to us. But. So next one, unless on I'm I'm kind of interested in, and I go back and forth, is Jeff Kent. Jeff Kent might be the greatest offensive second baseman of the last 30 years. And a lot of times, like, and we've seen the percentages, He he's good enough to stay on the ballot, but he really hasn't moved closer to any sort of induction. So examining Jeff Kent's career, where, what do you see?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So... I would say actually the best offensive second base from the last thirty years is Robinson Cano, and that's its own different conversation that we could save for maybe seven or eight years from now.
0: After after today, it's definitely different.
1: <laughs> a little different, although this is not this first offense, but we won't go into that. Yeah, I, look, I'm happy to defer to you on Jeff Kent, since you sort of saw him more than I did. I saw him maybe once or twice a year, at least in person, whereas you saw him on a more regular basis. To me, he was very. Good, but kind of a product of his era. Maybe this is going to sound a little disparaging, but to me, he was almost like a rich man's Brett Boone.
0: All right. I I can definitely see that comparison. Um, Now, the only thing I guess I would say is that Brett Boone had maybe the one or two incredible years. He was incredibly consistent. Jeff Kent was good for 25 and 100 every year for eight seasons. In, now, yes, in the height of the steroid era and everywhere else, but he spent most of that time at then Pac Bell Park, which, as we know today, is, is, is death to hitters. And somehow he still was able to kind of keep pace and, and did really well in that ballpark, did really well in the West, which also has a couple other Cavernous locations, depending on when you get. Dodger Stadium at night is a terrible place for hitters. This was still. Oh, this was also. He was there per at the end of Petco, or at the beginning of Petco, and I guess he was like more Qualcomm Jack Murphy while he was a Giant. Um, But I just look at him and that Giants team in the the early two thousands doesn't go. Without the combination of him and Bonds. They, them back to back was as lethal level one two punch as anyone in baseball. And yes, you can say like, well, Bonds, it wouldn't have mattered who was batting next to Bonds. It would, him alone was the most lethal one two combo. But Jeff Kent, I, again, like, I, I don't know if I would say he's a Hall of Famer. I think like if you had asked me, in The midst of it, if you asked me right after his career was over, I would have said yes. You ask me now, getting time to examine it. I am, I'm less sure about that candidacy now.
1: Got it. Well, one candidacy I'm sure about, although certainly will need some help this year, is Manny Ramirez. So I look at Manny Ramirez as almost the Terrell Owens of baseball in the sense that he was just kind of a baseball mercenary, but. The nature of baseball allows you to do that because it's harder to be selfish in a sport where everyone has to wait their turn than in a sport like football where everyone's more interdependent. But Manny Ramirez, to me, was the model of production. You can look at that first contract that he got in Boston where his eight years $160 million and go year by year and say, you know what, that was actually a pretty good deal. And it's pretty much impossible to say that about any other big contract of that era, except for maybe the first A-Rod contract before he signed that extension. You could certainly say the Texas years were worth it, but apart from that, in at a time, you know, where hundred million dollar players, frankly, weren't worth it. Manny Ramirez was worth every dollar.
0: I mean, it's hard to argue with that. I mean, he was as lethal of a hitter as there was for a good 12 to 15 years. When Manny Ramirez came to the plate, there was a good chance that something was going to happen. Like he was a run producing machine, whether that was any real, and he could hit to every field. He could he hit for power. He hit for average. Obviously like a lot of people remember the antics, especially toward the end, but this was a guy who could anchor any lineup. I mean, the guy won two world series. There's a reason why he was, He could take over a game even if he was only batting once every nine guys. And the PED thing is the one thing that's going to hang over his head. And as we kind of go through this list, it's going to become plainly clear. I do not care about that one way or another because he was one of the best players of that era. And we can't ignore that the era happened.
1: That's my feeling as well. And so you mentioned other people suspicious of suspected of PDs. Can we get into Barry Bonds and Kirch and uh well not Kurt Schilling, although he has an issues. Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. Because I feel like it's hard to talk about one and not talk about the other. Although yes. it didn't stop somebody from Voting for Clemens but not for Bonds last year, which I fundamentally I, do not understand.
0: I yeah, yeah, I do not understand that one at all. If you're going to vote for one, you vote for them both because they essentially do have mirrored careers in in a lot of respects that that you can you can essentially draw a line in both of their careers of pre suspected PEDs, and they're already Hall of Famers. And then once they were both just after the post-PED suspicion, they they just t- both turned into Superman. They, there was, they had essentially two different Hall of Fame careers each. And that's what was amazing about them. It's that they were already that good. It just made it near impossible to match up with them. And Bonds will, for, as a Giants fan, as a baseball fan, he is – He's maybe the greatest player I ever witnessed. Yeah. I didn't get to see Willie Mays. I didn't get to see a lot of these other great players. I saw Barry Bonds, and everyone across the country stopped when Barry Bonds was at the plate. That oh, that just speaks to the impact that he had on the game, the entertainment value that he brought to the game. I know that he wasn't the nicest person. No one will deny that, that he that he was a jerk. <laughs> but... He was the most feared hitter maybe ever. Like, even I don't, like, it would be him and Babe Ruth. Like I don't know if there's any other hitters that would be anywhere close to as feared as he was.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so I really do want to hear about your perspective, especially what it was like to be in San Francisco for Barry Bonds. But I'll, I'll say this first. When I think about Barry Bonds, I think about somebody that completely inverted the batter pitcher dynamic, especially for a slugger, right? A pitcher knows that a slugger's identity is set on hitting the ball out of the ballpark that people pay money to come see them hit home runs. And the only way they can do that is to swing. And so therefore a pitcher will hold that against the batter and throw him junk. And Barry Bonds, to his credit, the genius of Barry Bonds is his ability to control the strike zone and put it back on the pitcher and say, I'm not swinging at that. And if I don't hit a home run today, it's not my fault. It's your fault. And the people aren't going to be mad at me. They're going to be mad at you. And his ability to control the game from the batter's box and control the strike zone to me is his enduring memory. I've never seen a hitter do that in my lifetime. I don't think I ever will. And yeah, I I think he's probably the the greatest hitter I've ever seen as well. But like I said, Zach, I do want to know what it was like to be in San Francisco at the height of Bonds.
0: The height of Bonds was... Incredible, and I mean, everything stopped when he came to the plate. And this was obviously like the most notable was once we got into the 2000 season, 01, 02, 03, 04. All those years where he went from already a great player to the home run king, and the way he could command the the strike zone—you knew if he didn't swing, it wasn't a strike. And umpires knew that it's like he had such a good eye that if he did, if he spit on it, well, it must it must be a ball. And periodically, whenever an umpire made the called called a strike on him, and he clearly disagreed, just the snap looked back. It was almost like the umpire got scared. and It's like, okay, I will never do that again. And but like the everything changes when he was in the lineup. Everything changed when he. When he approached the plate, I mean, I can remember a moment in 98, and, and this is a pretty famous moment, when, uh, late in a game against the Diamondbacks, Bonds is coming to the plate with the bases loaded. The, the Diamondbacks are up by, I believe they are up by three, and they, and Buck Schwalter intentionally walks Bonds with the bases loaded because he would rather face anybody else in that scenario in the bottom of the ninth than him. And that just spoke to the amount of respect and fear that he had around the league that someone who was as experienced and successful as Buck Showalter, even at that moment, wanted nothing to do with them. Got you, and you can make the case of like that. And some of them will admit to it that without Barry Bonds, you don't see a Jeff Kent. You don't see the success of a Rich Aurelia that he, his presence alone in a lineup made people's careers, made other guys' careers. That he, he walked into San Francisco in 93 and Will, Car- Will Clark, of all people, got shown the door. That's the power of Barry Bonds.
1: Barry Bonds, you could argue, saved the Giants in San Francisco, which is something that we take for granted right now as the Giants have become one of the model franchises in the league. And it was not the case in the early 90s.
0: No, absolutely not. I like, mean they they were essentially about what, an hour away from being the Tampa Bay Giants. And that is something that when Bonds was brought back and obviously new ownership who really pushed to keep the team in San Francisco, wanted to keep the team in San Francisco, the McGowan group and whatnot, they but Bonds was the, the symbol of that. Bonds was this new era of Giants baseball being brought in. He was the hometown kid. Godfather is Willie Mays. His dad, Bobby Bonds, played for the Giants. There was such a connection there. I mean, he was almost a Giant actually out of high school because the Giants had taken him out of high school, but he chose to go to Arizona State and then obviously ended up with the Pirates first. But every time you go to the ballpark, it's like you made sure that you were – that you were going to be around in a visible spot when Bonds got to the plate because that was the event you came to see. I got to see a number of the landmark home runs throughout the years. Um, I was, I got to see 7.15 live off of byung Young Kim, which I think he made a victim of a number of times, which, of course, who wasn't a victim of him a number of times? Um, I, I'm actually half disappointed that I had tickets to the game after he hit 756, and I was so disappointed that I'm and I'm thinking the entire road trip because I, I think he had gone like four or five games he hadn't hit um, the record breaker, and I'm like, oh come on, just hold on for another another couple of days, another couple of days, and then the day before I actually get to before I had tickets to the game, he hit 756, and then off of Mike Bassick and. Just the incredible discipline that he continued to have from day one to the time he retired at the plate was I think the one thing that marveled everybody that he could get one good pitch all game long, sometimes all week long, and he wouldn't miss it. And regardless of what anyone wants to say about PEDs or whatnot, that you could take all the PEDs you would ever want you that takes an incredible amount of skill to be able to pull off the one time you have in in a period in a week's time, 2 weeks time, the only good pitch you see you nail it. That doesn't happen.
1: Well, speaking of taking all the PDs you want, how about Roger Clements?
0: <laughs> I I'm not a Roger Clemens fan, but I cannot deny that he He's the greatest pitcher of that era. You don't—that's at that's seven Cy Youngs. I—I I can't, I can't go against that.
1: Yeah. So the one time that I was able to see Roger Clemens in person was in Montreal back when he was pitching for the Astros, and I'll never forget the time he gave up a home run to John Rausch. But in all seriousness, Clemens, one of the great competitors of his era, dominant right-handed pitcher did it for a long time. Like if you think about the longevity plus the dominance, as you said, Zach, seven Cy Young's up to one of Cy Young, I think in the eighties, nineties and the two thousands. That's incredible. I don't know if we'll see that ever again, either.
0: And That's the thing. I mean, he, everything you could hope that you would get from a starting pitcher, he's done. So I don't, like he he has the awards, he has the World Series, he's he has the three hundred wins, he has short of I think it was it short of Carlton Johnson and um Ryan. He has the most strikeouts of anyone ever. It's like there's not much else that he hasn't accomplished and and a lot of that he accomplished before any of the suspected PEDs. And I think that's the other thing. I'm like both he and Bonds like share that where it's you could look at their numbers pre PED and they were Hall of Famers, and everything they did after that was icing on the cake. They're Hall of Famers.
1: He had 220 strikeout games. <laughs> yeah. You think
0: about how few strikeout games, how few of those games are our period, and this guy has two.
1: That's right. So that leads us to the final candidate and probably the person who I think. He's- will get in and probably the only one who will get in out of this year's batch is Kurt Schilling. Now, I got to say, Zach, I I don't feel bad for Kurt Schilling that he's had to wait this long, but unequivocally as good of a big game pitcher from that era, one of the best competitors I've ever seen in person. I'll never forget a game I went to where he pitched a complete game against the Expos and in the bottom of the ninth, gave up a walk-off home run to Vladimir Guerrero on a pitch that, in fairness to him, was probably nowhere near the zone. It was a high slider that was well above the letters. And Flatty golfed it out. And I'll never forget looking at Schilling walking off the mound. Um, I'm sure he was upset, but he just marched one foot after the other, kept his head down, and probably thought to myself, I pitched a great game, but I got to just pitch better. And I love that about him. I remember just again in the for an Expos walk off, I could not take my eye off the pitcher. And that is the kind of presence and charisma that Curt Schilling had. And that's why, to me, aside from the fact that you have multiple Cy Youngs, great playoff runs. I mean, you talk about World Series rings in oh one, oh four, and oh seven when he was on his last legs. I was also at that start too, Game Six at Fenway against the Indians, needing to have a good start to keep them alive as they were down three, one and then three, two in that series to me, he's unequivocally a hall of famer. And I'm sure you have memories of him back when he was a Diamondback and used to pitch against the giants all the time.
0: Yeah. As, as much as his, his more recent personal activities have kept him basically out of the hall to this point. You cannot deny the career that he had. Like he was, he was one of the best pitchers of his era. He's maybe one of you can make the case that like he's part of one of the best one-two combos ever in the history of the game with he and Randy Johnson when they were in Arizona. Uh you can the run that he had in Boston, the just the incredible performances. Obviously, we could talk about the bloody sock or the not bloody sock, depending on which story you want to read. Um, but he you knew when he took the mound that it was gonna be it was gonna be a long night for the opponent. You knew that he was going to get up there, he was gonna fight, he was going to outthink you, he really brought everything you would want from a starting pitcher. Like he he had the finesse of guys like Lavin or Maddox, but he threw but threw with the power of someone closer to like Clements. Obviously, have didn't throw as fast as Clements, but like that was kind of like he was the the rare combination of the two where he had he had the stuff of the power guys, but the finesse of the finesse of some of the other starters, and that's to like I can't think of like one specific shilling moment, but like every time he took them out, you knew it was trouble.
1: Yeah, so I always love that combination of sort of Brandon Braun. This is somebody that kept detailed notes about every umpire in terms of what their strike zones were long before this data was now you know which is now freely available this is someone that I think actually would have really thrived under this era in a world of advanced information, advanced technology. I look at who would have used that to their advantage based on what we know about them. And Kurt Schilling seems like that kind of person to me.
0: Agreed. And like, that's, that's one I, he's, he's in, he's good. He's the one who's likely going to get in this year. Um, The others on this list, I, there's, there's, there are cases to be made about these other guys. Um, we haven't even talked about Omar Vizquel. You know,
1: no, that's right. Who? Yeah, or Scott you know. Rowland, for that matter.
0: These, I mean, you talk about two of the best defensive players at their position, maybe ever. Obviously, Omar's—he's on a short list with Louis Aparicio and Ozzy Smith as far as the best defensive shortstops ever. Rowland is one you don't necessarily think about the top of your head, but you go take a look at the numbers, and he's right there with everybody else.
1: Yeah, Roland is one of the greatest defensive third baseman ever. Maybe not quite Beltre, but certainly close to that elk, at least defensively, and a pretty good hitter in his day too. Vizcal is almost what I would call the uh, comedian's comedian of, of baseball players, where if you ask a comedian who their favorite comedian is, that's known as a comedian's comedian. If you ask baseball players who they really admired at that time, I think a lot of people would have said Vizcal in terms of his reputation, not just as a teammate, but as somebody who was always in the right position, who was always thinking the game. I remember instances, I think he did this with the Giants, where a potential double play turned where he didn't think he would get the person at first, but somehow knew to throw behind the runner turning at third and get the, I guess it would have been a 4 6 five double play instead of a 4
0: six, 3 it was a fake fake throw to first, and then yeah, he spun and picked the guy off a of third who had rounded rounded the base a bit too far.
1: Somebody who's still home at an advanced age.
0: Omar Vizquel was one of the smarter players you would you would ever run into, and obviously, if at that position, that's that's what you want. You want your shortstop to be the the captain out there to be the leader, to be the one directing traffic. And Omar Vizquel was. Like he he anchored he anchored a Cleveland defense for for a good chunk of the '90s and the early 2000s. He resurrected his career later with the Giants. So he obviously was he hit a lot of different spots later in his career, but everywhere he went, like he had the respect of the clubhouse, which is which is an, an incredible feel like that you don't, there aren't too many guys who can do that
1: And I think he's one of the. I think there's only four guys that have stolen a base in four different decades.
0: 80s, 90s, thousands and tens. eh?
1: Yeah. Uh, Rick Anderson and Tim Raines. I mean, it's also a function of when you join, you got to play over 20 years and also have to start playing at the end of one decade. So there's a little bit of convenience there, but yeah, great career. I think he gets in eventually. Roland, I think his case could ascend like a Larry Walker where maybe it takes him four or five years, but towards the end of his eligibility, it wouldn't shock me to if he gets in Andrew Jones, it'll be interesting to see how his candidacy evolves. And then of course, bonds and Clemens, they got two more years and they haven't really taken much of a jump in these last couple of years. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of lift, if any, they get this year, especially on a weaker ballot.
0: And as we're on the topic of awards, hall of fames and all of this, we wanted to actually think about like, what were some of like maybe, not real, but fun awards that would actually be kind of, that'd be cool to hand out. So Max, like, what do you have in mind of like what would be kind of like a cooler, off the wall sort of award?
1: Yeah, so I think everyone's heard a breakdown of the MVPs and the Cy Youngs and Gold Gloves at this point, but I would like some recognition for the position players that pitch. <laughs> to me, it's one of my favorite part of the game. Um, I think it's a treat for anybody who stays at the end of a blowout. And I always find it memorable. So the awards that I would like to see, best position player who pitched. I would also like to see worst position player who pitched, especially now that we have the data, right? We have the radar guns, track man. We can look at their velocities and maybe even feel bad, good about ourselves that, oh, there's a guy pitching in the majors who's throwing 70 mile an hour fastballs. I might have been able to throw 70 when I was 16, Maybe not, but I think I, I think I topped out at 65. What did you top out at, Zach?
0: Oh, I, I may, was maybe 75 is maybe where I topped out at. I was also not terribly impressive on the velocity front.
1: Yeah, I definitely did not have a secondary offering. I think that's probably what killed me, but I could have been Mark Burley. No, no I couldn't have. But, but yeah, I would like to see position players get recognized because to me, that's one of my favorite parts of Blaz
0: so I'm going to stick with, with the mound, but I'm going to not, I'm not going to think about the awards at the end of the game. I'm going to go pregame and I'd like to actually kind of see a collection of the worst first pitch award. So I want to see like who could, I mean, we see it every year. There's a number of really awful first pitches that are thrown and, I think that would be just another fun thing to have just say I mean it's going to put some people on blast of like people who definitely are not athletes in any sort of way but I in but I still think it'd be funny to to have that the worst first pitch award be out there for the one that makes us laugh the most the one that's the most entertaining maybe it's the one that drilled a mascot in the head I don't know it's just other little things that I think that could that kind of lighten up that the the pressure of the first pitch or might actually add pressure to the first pitch.
1: Okay, Zach. So when you picture bad
0: ceremonial first pitches, who do you picture immediately? Ooh, I The first two that pop on my head are 50 cent and Carly Ray Jepsen.
1: Those are the exact two that I was going to say.
0: They, the, they are, they are worst first pitch hall of fame. They are on the Mount Rushmore of worst first pitches. Um, yeah. Those two are definitely up there. Oh, who threw the first pitch that hit the umpire? And I forget which umpire it was. And then they immediately ejected them.
1: How bad was the first pitch that hit the, hit the umpire? Usually the umpire not even on the field.
0: He was just off to the side and it was so bad it hit the umpire. <laughs> And the umpire turns, looks at him, and gives him the gives him the ejection. Okay, I I can't remember who it is. I'm now going to have to go onto YouTube, find that first pitch, and so
1: well, actually, I would like to see umpire of the year as an award. And I think you could do this quantifiably, just in terms of either fewest calls challenged or most calls challenged that were not overturned.
0: So we know Angel Hernandez will not be winning this award.
1: Probably not. Um, yeah, it's sort of a—it's weird to have a, an award for an, a job where your goal is to be anonymous. But yeah, I, I think we need better visibility. Actually, I knew someone that was in an umpire fantasy league. Oh man! Yeah, you get points for every time someone's ejected.
0: <laughs> nice. <laughs>
1: So he'd be scouring the box course the next day, trying to figure out where his crew was and whether or not they threw somebody out.
0: I wonder who, who was probably higher on that list. Me, I, I would imagine like a C.B. Buckner or a Joe West was really high on that list. High draft picks.
1: Got it. Do you have any other potential awards that you would like to hand out, Zach? Let
0: me think about this. You... You know what? It's not an official one, but I think it would be really fun to do like a, like the best double play award. The, the, whether that, and it could be any double play, whether it's a, like a, it can be a 7 2 double play, it can be a, your, your traditional 4 6 3 double play, like the, the one that like gives the most wow factor on your, on the double play. And I think that's, 'cause we see the the highlights all year round, and especially the ones that stand out, it'd be nice that there if there's like an official award for that and just to kind of say like this was the one that we're gonna remember forever
1: <laughs> I agree, do you have a favorite double play just in terms of not so much the double play itself but numerically a favorite double play that Ooh. aesthetically makes you the most happy
0: there man, there are a lot of really good ones on. Oh, now, I, there were a couple I was actually thinking that were a triple play. It was a uh, it was a college game that actually had an uh a crazy triple play. It was like a 7-2 5-4 3 triple play which was kind of nuts. But uh I th- I I like kind of seeing the I kind of like the double plays that require more than your traditional three uh, fielders. So anything more, I, if, especially something that's originating in the outfield. I think like if I start to see a double play that's originating in the outfield, it's like, it's like seven, two for the first out. And maybe you have to go throw down the second for the second out, or it somehow there's a rundown. And then I throw out a guy at a different base. Like the, I think I like chaos. Um, the more chaos, uh, I like that double play.
1: So, I like a Chris double play. So, I like three six one. I think it's great. I think one two three is kind of great in a way, just because it's fun to write. Although I don't think anything will top the. Have you ever seen the famous nine two seven two
0: double play? I have not.
1: So that's your homework assignment, Zach. Go home. Well, you already are home.
0: <laughs> Everyone's home.
1: Everyone's home. Well, that was fast. There's a famous Mariners Blue Jays 9272 double play.
0: 9272 DP. We'll be spending my night on YouTube watching double plays all night long.
1: That's right. If you watch Blue Jays games on TV, it was. Uh, anchored by buck martinez who is also the play-by-play guy and so he brings it up much in the same way twin Kuiper brings up his one home run nice
0: all right um so i think we're gonna get out of here uh, thanks everybody for um uh, catching up with us on the on the cutoff man podcast uh for max i am zach and uh we will catch you later